Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to Literary Arts, the Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Today, we have a conversation from the 2023 Portland Book Festival on food, cooking, family, traditions, and storytelling, of course. And like some of my favorite things to eat, it just happens to be vegetarian. The conversation is led by Portland's superstar chef Gregory Gorday, the chef owner at Khan, which was awarded Best New Restaurant 2023 from multiple outlets, including the James Beard Awards. Gorday is also the author of a wonderful cookbook, Everyone's Table. He chats with fellow Portland chef and restaurateur Aaron Adams of Fermenter, which last year published a Fermenter cookbook, co-authored by Portland's own Liz Crane about vegan fermentation. Joining our Portlanders is recipe developer Hetty Lou McKinnon, a frequent contributor to New York Times Cooking and the author of To Asia with Love, and most recently, the cookbook Tender Heart. Born and raised in Sydney, Australia, McKinnon is now based in Brooklyn, New York. So you might be asking, why are we talking about cookbooks on a literary show? Well, we are all about storytelling. And I love how this conversation reveals the rich stories in recipes, in what we cook, in what we eat. Food connects us to our ancestry and to personal food traditions, and at the same time can open our world to new tastes, much like we can find reflections of ourselves and doors to new worlds in the stories that we read. Food tells a story, and the group talks about how our food connects us not only to the past, but to our present community, and even to the future in creating new traditions. Let's join the group for this conversation that goes so far beyond vegetables. So let's start with maybe Aaron and Liz. Aaron, this is your first cookbook. And, you know, I've been part of the community for quite some time. I've followed you around a few different restaurants in Portland. And what I love about Fermenter is that it's a very different approach to cooking vegetables. Can you kind of let us know a little bit about your thought process and how you make vegan food and plant-based food and just cook in general and how that led to creating your book. Sure. Um, I don't think it's too uh, out there insofar as that we, um, you know, really want to be seasonal and local and support local agriculture. I don't think that's like, uh, I mean, that's pretty in these days. (laughs) Especially here. Uh, um, But, uh, you know, there's there's doing it and there's doing it. And I think that um, it's really important to me that we have like some relationships with farmers, like um, especially if we purchase a lot from like Groundwork Organics and there's just um, to be able to see what comes through um, on the list. And it really helps us to kind of tell the story of, you know, here and now and um, time and place. And uh, one of the things we want to do is make it really accessible to people. And so to have um, dishes that are uh, not too far out there and have them be like comforting. So like we, you know, the menus like sandwiches, bowls, soups, things like that, really approachable things that people can get their mind around. And um, one of the things that vegetarian food 
um, or vegan food sometimes can be lacking unless you're using artificial means of some sort is, is lacking uh, depth of flavor, umami. Um, you address that really well in your book. Um, and so what we did is though, you, by using fermentation, we're able to transform lots of the vegetables that we use and to find different flavors of piquancy, savoriness, things like that. So, you know, we're making, um, so that's like one aspect of it. And I think the other thing that's really important is that we, you know, me personally, I think that fermentation is this really important process to connect us with our humanness and our history and our ancestry. And so keeping like food traditions uh, alive. And let's also to say like, when I say ours, I mean like human beings because literally most all fermentation does come from China. I mean like pretty much everything that we do originated from that region. Um, sauerkraut. Can, can we, for those of us who might not know the exact Fermentation makes things delicious, like kombucha is fermented, kimchi yeah. is fermented. But what 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 happens during fermentation for like? Well, there's different types of fermentation, right? And we we're talking about fermentation in a culinary sense. We're not talking about strict, strict like glycolysis. But like when we're talking about fermentation in a culinary sense, we're talking about the transformation of food at a micro like a, a micro level, right? So like we're talking about like kombucha, kefir, um, uh, vinegar, sauerkraut miso, koji, et cetera, et cetera. But those processes are all completely so different from each other, right? Mm -hmm. Vinegar. Yeah. Uh -huh. And it's all little critters eating stuff yeah. and then making it more delicious for us. Right. Basically. Totally. And, but, but like tempeh is, not, is more like mold growing on a substrate. Good you mold. Know. Yeah. Good mold, Tasty yeah. Tasty mold. And, Tasty uh, mold. And koji, which I, you know, I have my koji shirt on, is, is like one of the, the everyone here, uh, there's, does everyone know what koji is? Okay, everyone here has eaten tons and tons of koji. So it's you know, in soy sauce, sake, miso, et cetera, et cetera. And so the transformation of what it does, it's like insane. And the, th and the thing that just blows my mind when we, when we talk about uh, fermentation and that humanness and that ancestry and that connection is just like how amazing it is that ancient people were able to figure out how to do this without microscopes or anything like that. The fact that like people in China 2,600 years, 3,000 years ago were able to figure out to uh, domesticate a uh, toxic mold and make it into something that could make rice into s sweetness that they could make alcohol with. I mean, that's like insane. Um, and, and then they continue to breed mold into being better for making savory things or better for sweeter things. So, so to be part of that and to learn that stuff and to be able to utilize it to make foods that are like, like foods that are like familiar um, is, yeah, it's just like the work I want to do for sure. Amazing. Um, Hedy, uh, speaking of ancestry, uh, you know, I, I'm obsessed with your book. Um, Me too. A, <laughs> a, because it's huge. <laughs> yeah. It's at 525 pages, and if you haven't <laughs> seen this book, like, this thing is heavy. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, the photography is incredible. Um, you shot your book yourself, right? So beautiful, oh, wow. gorgeous images. And you guys, the recipes are so short. It's like absolutely incredible. So I'm a huge <laughs> fan. Oh, thank you. Um, and outside of the incredible recipes, um, there's different categories of vegetables. And, um, but there's, a, there's a, a deeper story to your book. And there's a story of family um, and reconnecting with loss. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so beautiful. Um, if you want to. Tell us a little bit about the relationship you had with your father and what he did and how his passing inspired your book. 
listening to um, you talk about fermentation is really interesting because I grew up eating fermented food, not really understanding that it was fermented food. It was just food <laughs> um, in our house. And I, you know, apart from the crates of vegetables in my house, there were also jars of um, just fermenting things in the beginning. Of, I'll, I'll talk about the story in a second, but like in the, the opening of the ginger chapter in this book, there is um, a narrative recipe of um, pickling gin, young ginger, or ji geong, um, and it's something that my mum shared with me over FaceTime that she does, and there is no actual recipe, but it's like a, an ideology. It's mm -hmm. like this yeah. is what you do. You get this young ginger, you you boil it in, in water, then you pour off the water, and then you put it in fresh water, and uh, it's just one of those things where it's like... This is so beautiful, the way she's telling it, that I don't want it to be a recipe, like with traditional like measurements. It's, it's um, so much of what my mother does is just instinct and uh, just, you know, knowledge gained from watching her ancestors. So, um, yeah, that was a really fun thing to be able to share. But um, in terms of tender heart itself, it is, I'm a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian for a long time, since I was a teenager. And... At the crux of being a vegetarian is a, is a very deep love of vegetables, and this is my fifth book, and I really felt like after writing To Age With Love, I really wanted to write just a book about vegetables, and it was meant to be very light and fun, and that's how I described it to my publisher, actually. And then when I started working on it, I realised that my relationship with vegetables is very much rooted in my upbringing, which is the, being the daughter of... Um, uh, my dad was worked at the markets, the produce markets in Sydney, and he was actually a banana trader. And, and so having him work there, our home was always just full of vegetables, just all over, you know, crates, boxes um, of vegetables all over the house. And that was just very normal to me, but I never really understood or investigated the impact that that had on my life. And so when I went to write this book, I felt like I needed to tell that story, like my, my origin story of why vegetables are so important to me. And um, I lost my father when I was 15 um, and really have gone through life feeling very disconnected to him in many ways. Um, and when I started working on this book, I felt like I finally found that courage to actually think about him again mm. and think about uh, the impact that he's had on me. Obviously, most of my writing up until now has been about my mum, you know, because she's the living parent that I have with me and um, I never saw my father in me at all until I really started giving myself licence to actually think about him again in this book. So it's been um, an incredible process for me to write um, so openly and to think about things that I've actually not allowed myself to think about for about 30 years. And, um, yeah, and that's the power of food, yeah. to find that connection. Um, because all my memories of my father as a child, so I didn't know him as an adult, I, um, it's hard to kind of understand who I am in relation to him. So I have vegetables as a way of reconnecting with him. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's what Tender Heart is about. But... Um, yeah, it's, it's been an amazing book to be able to write and to be able to share with other people and to be able to talk to other people about 
these topics of loss and grief and um, ultimately how you find joy in that because that's what the book I think from the cover to the very last page is all about joy um, and a celebration of life. Hmm. Incredible. Can I say something real quick? Absolutely. I love also that the connection to your dad through the photos because you yeah. take all of your photos for your cookbook and you said that the dark room that you had growing mm. up was in the laundry room? Yeah, so my dad was an amateur photographer and actually um, To Asia With Love was the first book that I photographed. Okay. And it was actually photographed on film, which was a crazy, crazy thing to do for a cookbook um, because cookbook photography is always about having things look perfect and having everything in place and having things perfectly in focus. And so there was kind of none of that in that book. It was all... Um, taken, the film was, uh, you know, shipped across the country because I wanted to get them developed at this place in San Francisco for some reason. Uh, we, we do weird things, don't we? Um, but it was, it, I backed up all the photos on um, digital, but I didn't use any digital photography at all in that book. And I wanted to do that. That was really my first time. My dad um, was an amateur photographer, so he had a dark room at home. And it's one of the things that I remembered about him. Um, and it's actually one of the first things that I saw that was perhaps something that I got from him. Um, and he, I have his old um, camera, film camera, so um, I use that. So that was kind of the first foray into kind of finding those connections with him. Incredible. Um, Eddie, I love, there's a, uh, a line in your book that says, my approach to vegetables is unapologetic. And, you know, that's one of the um, opening um, kind of quotes from the book. And um, it's a bold statement, um, and it's very true. You know, 525 pages later, I'm still, <laughs> like, looking at these recipes. There's, like, um, there's like a broccoli loaf, which is, like, looked incredible. It's, like, banana bread, but you have a savory banana bread, but it's broccoli instead of, like, I was like, oh, I've never had broccoli bread before. Um, Stir-fried lettuce. Uh, there's just, like, a lot of great things. Um, I think this is a great kind of topic or, you know, descriptor for both books. Liz, how do you feel this unapologetic approach um, represents kind of fermentation and how you worked on the book with Aaron? Well, I think that all of our books are all about empowering the home cook, so just being really inviting. So saying unapologetic, I think I hear in that rather than um, any kind of combativeness. I just hear this like playful, like, this is weird and funky. There's going to be strange smells. You might have to scrape mold off of your miso. But, you know, let's try it together and not get bogged down too much on all of the details. Let's learn the processes. We have a lot of process shots in the book and kind of um, tips for koji, tips for making kombucha so that you can learn in different ways. Um, but I do think that like we just really, like with the Portland Fermentation Festival that I run as well, like we want to invite young and old people who've never you know, tried the, their hand at this before to like come in and play and like use your vegetables and um, make some things that'll last longer, that will have years of flavor, even if they're only fermented for a few days to a few weeks. Um, and it's really easy. And sometimes you just need salt and a vegetable and a knife in a jar. Who in the audience has fermented something on purpose? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
we got a lot of fermenters in here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think fermentation might be scary to some folks, but we have yeah. a very well-seasoned audience. This is also Portland, Oregon, so we're advanced. <laughs> we're very advanced in all things DIY. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I remember like kind of like d diving into fermentation in my book and trying to explain it. And you guys like definitely like your book is about fermentation. Yeah. What are some of the kind of like the entry level projects you think someone wanting to ferment something for the first time should start on? Sauerkraut. I think kraut. I also think the spicy jardinera is yeah, so jardinera. like a just you, you yeah. just make a brine mm -hmm. and you pour it over yeah. a rainbow of vegetables. Most of them like in Hetty's book, she has a lot of things where she's like, I don't care that broccoli is not seasonal year round. You can get it at the grocery yeah. store. Let's use it. It's my one of my favorite vegetables. And it's kind of like that with the spicy jardinera. You can make it in the summer when everything is plentiful, but you can make it year round and just pour a brine over it and I put it on the counter and for sure, and like any kind yeah. of any lactic acid bacteria ferment because yeah. you can get vegetables at the store. Everyone has salt. Everyone has like old mason jars, and everyone has water. So I mean, I hope. And then you know, so that's pretty. You know, it's it's a lot. Um, it's a, there's more steps involved in like acquiring some cultures or like some um, you know rise of his oligospores or something like that. You know, so but like everyone can make start a sauerkraut today and have it ready by next week which is also nice too. It's pretty quick turnaround. I have a sauerkraut I started when I wrote my book, so it's been in my fridge for like four years. <laughs> <laughs> it might have some texture deterioration. It's still good. Yeah. So Aaron, you know, there's like obviously this like whole beautiful, delicious, scientific kind of like element to your book because it's based on fermentation. But below that or around that, there is this kind of thought process of like this like punk DIY ethic, but there's also this kind of theme of failing mm -hmm. and making mistakes and kind of pushing through that. And while we can talk about that in like a fermentation context, something might get a little moldy, you might have to restart. I feel like that's actually a very good kind of way to think about life and how you pick yourself yeah. by cup. How do we, you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, I always like, I kind of describe myself as a late bloomer because I feel like you know, I've been in this career for a long time, but I, I feel like I've had a lot of my personal setbacks, like anxiety and, you know, like anxiety disorder and stuff like that. You know, things like that has that you know real people have. You know, me too. And we, um, and I've made lots of mistakes. I kind of grew up a little rough, I guess would be easy to say. And um, punk music and like that kind of scene was really important for me growing up. Um, cause there, it created like a family for me that was really important. And it also gave me, informed my worldview, which was, um, it kind of pushed me into like having this, this thought about, um, understanding people that the world was complicated, being more open-minded. I think it's not a mistake that a lot of people who are in the fermentation are very like lefty people because they can, they can see that the world is not, it's not easily to ledger. The world's complicated, it's messy. Um, you don't always get the outcome you want, but you just kind of have to go with it. And I think that fermentation really has so many lessons for us in it um, for dealing with failure, which is, you know, take note, try again, you know, pick yourself up, wash the vessel out, try it again. And also sometimes a failure, they're not really failures, right? They're the outcome. It's the outcome of the inputs. So. 
everything that you put into that jar, it did exactly what you told it to do. Um, and that's what happens with our lives too. We feel a little bit out of control, but you know, sometimes things just happen and sometimes there's things that you can't account for. So with sauerkraut, for example, I'll make, I remember one time I made um, like 400 pounds of sauerkraut. I had 200 pounds. That's a lot of crap. <laughs> <Everyone's> like, <laughs> got 200 pounds go? in one, one vessel, 200 pounds in another vessel. They were fermenting, and you know, big stainless steel, like 40 gallon tanks. There's, there's maybe two feet away from each other, same cabbage lot, came from the same farm, shredded in the same day, salted with the same salt. This one turned out crunchy nice, this one melted into complete texture deterioration. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I, I remember I called up my, my friends at the cultured pickle shop down in Berkeley, and I was like, what, this, what can cause this? Like, is there, you know, the, and um, you know, Kevin down there, he just said like, you know, I put it, the quote in the book, so the gist of it basically was, you know, it's a, you know, she's a cruel mistress, fermentation. <laughs> and uh, and we'll uh, continue to F you over, um, over and over again. And you know, we see that all the time, you know, at, at, at work, you know, like we'll, we had, a, we had this period of time where, for some reason, my fermenter, uh, this, my, 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 good, my great guy, Josh, he just couldn't make tempeh. And tempehs were failing one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. And we we're just like, what is going on with tempeh? Why is it failing over and over again? It was stressing us out. It was stressing all the cooks out. Note that Aaron uses like very quality, expensive, organic, <laughs> local ingredients, so I just, you know, this sounds very expensive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it was, I mean, we lost, I mean, that month we lost $9,000. Oh, my God. And, like, um, and so we're just like, what is happening? We have to figure this out. And it turned out, like, um, the ODA inspector came and told him that the base needed to be acidulated uh, below 4.6 for the, and it's, like, not true with tempeh. Like, I'm sorry, Oregon Department of Agriculture, but you don't understand traditional Indonesian foods. And it's not uh, an acidified food. It's just, it just isn't. But anywho, um, so he was putting, they were putting so much vinegar. It actually wasn't Josh. It was this other person that we won't name. Um, and they were putting so much uh, uh, vinegar in the water that they were not allowing um, the mold to take hold. It was, it just, it was so, because by the time you add 4.6 to get a base, on pH, like the the water is acidulated. Like literally, I saw him. Uh, I was like, "Go step by step. Let me watch what you're doing." And he had a pot of water like this, and he was getting like a thing of vinegar like this, right? And I was like, "You need like maybe a quarter cup, right?" And like and like and so it was just it was just insane. So we were wasting tons of money on that, and we we're just having all this product go bad. And um, that just you know, but that's just the way it goes. And so. Um, you just have to dust yourself off and keep on going. And, and I like to think that, like, uh, you know, like, um, you know, I was just telling you backstage, it's like all of this stuff um, that you work hard for, you know, eventually comes to fruition. So I feel like the book, our restaurant's finally kind of taking stride. And uh, my wife is pregnant, which is awesome. And, and your book, too, by the way, just like, if I could be like half the dad that your dad was, like, the yeah, stoked. Amazing. Yeah. Oh. Incredible. And and those lessons learned obviously are baked into the cookbook. So you yeah. have that in the yeah. in the tip sheet for tempeh. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be scared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hedy, um, you're a prolific recipe writer. Um, 
and you've talked about how you know this is your fourth book and you know a lot of your earlier works were centered around your mother because she was kind of like the living breathing person in your life and do you feel that it took kind of writing a few books to get to that place where you kind of like working backwards and like looking inward to get to the place where you could write about your father yeah and with so many memories potentially coming back as you started this project do you feel those memories are what inspired so many recipes in the book, and, and how did that work? Yeah, all of it. Um, yeah, my book started with a community, which was, I mean, for those people who don't know, I had a salad delivery business in Sydney, and um, I had no experience in cooking before that, and I had no experience in writing books or writing recipes before that. That was in about 2011, and I wrote a book for that community, actually, which was like 60 recipes, and so that's how I started. And since then, my topics, the narratives have slowly become smaller, like more inward, um, more narrow, but it's, and, and I guess more personal. And all of the memories is what propels what I do. Um, the stories, the sense of nostalgia, like moving to New York um, almost 10 years ago was, I think, a huge catalyst in that because when I was in Sydney, um, my first book, all, like my four, like since Neighbourhood, they've all been written in the States. And so, um, but when I moved over here, it was this sense of longing that really took hold of me as a person and manifested in all the work that I do. So everything I do has this kind of um, nostalgia, almost homesickness, um, longing for what I had growing up. Um, my mum, like, because she's still in Sydney, and just and trying to recreate that in my life, recreate that for myself. And and the stories is really what inspires me. Like, even if it's I don't know, I write for the Times, I do a recipe for the Times. They 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 can't be as personal actually. Um, but I'm still trying to inject a little bit of myself in there, like even, I don't know, that dumpling tomato salad, which, you know, went kind of viral and now everyone says it's their salad or whatever. But I'm like, well, to be honest, there's not that many Chinese salad makers in the world. Um, and it really is a really big reflection on me, like that kind of very fast and and kind of, you know, fast, simple salad really reflects a lot of who I am as a person who, um, you know, I carry all the stories of my ancestry, um, of my mum, and I'm a totally different person to her, you know, like I had um, a totally different upbringing to her, but we're very similar. So it's it's kind of interesting to see the parallels in who she is, who I am, and then who like my children are, and just kind of bring trying to bring that all together in, in the storytelling, whether that be a book or a recipe. You talk a lot about how you know your father was very much you know you cooked seasonal vegetables, you know just the cases of produce in in your home, and then that's such a great visual, and then 
kind of uh, your father was also kind of like a foodie and sense that like you guys would go and explore and eat at buffets and like mm-hmm. I, I totally remember having similar experiences yeah. as you know this a child of immigrants and like eating super traditional foods at home yeah. like made by my family and then you know like going to like a buffet or like Red Lobster you know like it's like <laughs> big day out you know yeah like a buffet is yeah. like the opposite like the polar yeah. opposite of yeah. everything yeah. you know like little cakes yeah. like yeah. what are they like little like lettuce like uncooked lettuce what's that (laughs) so um i mean even for me you know when i started working specifically on on the restaurant con and like you know like i also consider myself a late bloomer aaron but like i you know i've cooked lots of different cuisines and i finally started wanted to cookation so i went back and worked with my mom i was like mom teach me all the family recipes and you know cooking these recipes for the first time with my mom and you know like now she jokes like I make them all better than she does and you know but like I, I still very much whenever that we have like Thanksgiving or I come home like we cook together I'm, I'm very much in like a position of like I'm still trying to learn from her how do you feel cooking with your mother has changed over the years as you've written these books and you know as you found your your very clear voice as a as a prolific recipe writer and then finally going back to this place where we're with Tenderheart where these are all memories of your father. When I go back to Sydney and cook with my mum, I revert back to being a child. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> she's very much, it's her kitchen, it's, you know, I'm her assistant. And I like that though, you know, because I think that whatever I've done in my life, the books I've written, the recipes I've written, they're just, I'm still, as you say, I'm, I'm learning from her. And although the flavours of what we cook are completely different, mm. um, the, the kind of the structure of what I know as a cook, like I've been thinking recently about, um, you know, language and how language affects the way we approach life and who we are as people. Um, and it was actually a thought that my daughter, actually, she was, um, when she was five, she asked me, when you speak in... Cantonese, are you thinking in Cantonese or thinking in English? And that thought has stayed with me for a long time. She's now 17. Um, but it's it's about, you know, like, I wonder whether I'm, when I'm making, for example, a salad, which is not Asian at all, whether I'm actually still thinking and cooking as a, a Cantonese person. Mm. And so whether those um, structures of flavour and what I'm looking for, that deep umami that's very, um, that's a signature of Cantonese cooking, very savoury, like I'm always searching for that in my food. Um, doesn't matter if it's a Middle Eastern salad or, you know, something Mediterranean. Um, that's kind of, yeah, that influence is very strong. So when I'm cooking with her, I still really allow her to be the the boss. She has a very strange relationship with what I do. She doesn't really understand it. And she also doesn't read English, she doesn't speak English. Mm. Um, so everything I'm doing, she has no idea what I've written about her. Mm. Um, I'm writing for, I mean, it's all been good, right? I mean, but that itself is a very strange experience to write to an audience. So it's like, you know, many people describe to Asia with love as a love letter to my mother, but I'm writing to an audience who's never going to read it. So that to me holds, it holds so much that I've written basically of my love for her in my recipes, but she doesn't know that, so I still have to express it in other ways. Mm. So that's that's interesting. And, And, you know, like this book, like Tender Heart, 
it's um, I was very cautious. I mean, there's an author's note at the beginning. Um, memory is, you know, memory changes. Memory is not static. Memory is, um, you know, shaped by your experience and what you've seen in the world. And I've led a very different life to my siblings, my mum. They're all still back in Sydney. And so my memories of my father are very much my own. And I really wanted to um, make that very clear that these are the way I interpret my memories mm. of my dad. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a funny relationship. It's hard to explain. Um, team fermentation, uh, you know. <laughs> so, you know, in the, in the chef world, fermentation has been quite the hot topic. Um, every, you know, knife and radish tattooed chef um, has fermented. <laughs> no chef tattoos. <laughs> Um, you know, I feel we reach peak fermentation, um, but how, you know, obviously in the fermentation world, fermentation is not a trend. Um, it's been around for, since time existed. Um, how do you think writing this book, um, you know, the specifically vegetable focused fermentation cookbook and now, um, from your perspective, from a, from a vegan plant-based perspective, why do you think it's important? My favorite thing about the Fermenter cookbook is that there's part one and part two. Mm -hmm. So you get the, you know, entree into fermentation via kombucha, water kefir, miso, um, tempeh, sour pickles, etc. But then in part two, you're cooking from a chefy perspective, but made well for the home cook in mind. So it set you up for success. Um, most fermentation books don't have, it's, they're more hyper-focused in general or just focused on fermentation and not the dishes that you then create, like the almost famous fermenter burger or the cheesy JoJo's or the salads. What sets it apart for now is kind of diversifying all of the different types of ferments that are just happen to be beloved by Aaron and that he shares with all of us in his wonderful restaurants, but also you know, making these dishes with them and getting all that know-how. One of the most important things about making the book was I wanted to be able to share my perspective. I think, I, I think that, you know, it's really important to me that we learn how to do these things and we continue to do them because we cannot hand, as I say this over and over again, we cannot hand the keys of creativity over to corporations. We, we can't just be consumers. And I'm afraid that we're, con we're continuing to homogenize our culture, we're continuing to give away our creativity, we're continuing to just consume like media and, and food that's given to us. And we need to know how to cook. And we need, we need to do it. I'm so excited by the, by the prospect of like being able to cook with my daughter someday. Like that just sounds like so awesome to be able to pass that down. And we just, to, to continue to being human and not just like consuming like robot automatons we need to know how to do this stuff and we need to have our pantries full of of ferments that we make ourselves and create traditions within our family and so it's it's important to me like this book was like hopefully the first book <laughs> there's so many great authors out there obviously yeah, Kirsten Shockley, we just, I mean, she's yep. just insane. She's a badass and, you know, Sander Katz and everything. You don't need to get a book from me, but, like, I think that, uh, and Liz hates when I say that, but, like, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
There's plenty of other get better books. books. Definitely need to get that book. <laughs> but, get book. Um, but I think that's just. Um, I think that the message that we have in, in our book, besides like really talking about failure, is just like, and, and it all goes into it. The DIY. We have to continue to um, to do these things, and we can't just do it as a hobby. Okay. Let me just say it this way. As a, as a professional chef, right, I go to the farmer's market for real. I go there to work, right? I go there not just to like, and it's beautiful that we have tourists and stuff in town that like walk around and ram into you while you're trying to like carry like a box of produce. It's nice, but I, I think that, I think you need to engage with these things in your community for real. Go shop at the farmer's market. Right? For real. Don't just do it for like funsies. Go every Wednesday to the Shemansky once in season. Go every sat uh, Saturday right to now. PSU. Right now, after yeah. here, go over there. The PSU <laughs> farmers, where I get engage with your community in that way. Go buy produce from these people, right? Go and then make stuff with it and continue to learn and make stuff and make food and take the time. It's going to take stress off of your life. It's going to create traditions within your family. It's going to create family bonds that are so important. I feel you on the salad thing. P.S. My family's from Cuba. No salads involved. <laughs> Avocado salad. You have Haitian salads or salads? It's like lettuce and tomatoes. Yeah. yeah. It's, the Caribbeans are not like that into salad. Lots of pork. Yeah, a lot yeah, of pork. A lot of pork. Can I just add, um, yeah. like, seasonal rites of passage are really important to me, and I think with fermentation, that really plays into it. So, you know, like the persimmon vinegar, which yeah. is much like your yeah, mom's spring yeah, ginger ferment mm -hmm. in yeah. the laundry room. It's, it's a narrative recipe, so there aren't, you know, volume and ingredients and steps, but um, I ferment because I have a plum tree in the front yard and I make wine with it and I share it with my friends. And yeah. every year I have that cyclical feeling of, oh, well, now it's when I'm going to rack it and now is when I'm going to thin the fruit. And it adds so much value to your what life. To Yeah, it's very, feel, make, uh, allows you to feel rooted um, to the planet and to place and much like shopping, you know, at the farmer's market. If you're able to grow these things at home, it also can yeah. really S go hand in hand with fermenting. Super, yeah. it's super. And fermenting is important, but also all the other, you know, yeah. all this other cooking and drying, you know, dehydrating, uh, preserving, canning, all these kind of things. Just, just please, please, please do them. And, 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 and um, it's cool that, you know, like, oh, we're going to work on sourdough. Like, just continue, you'll keep a sourdough starter, make bread all the time, or whatever's in your food tradition that you want to, like, I don't know. I can't, I can't speak on that loud enough. I, I as, as a um, half Cuban American, like, one half of my family is, like, uh, microwave everything. And, and I love my Nana. She's 101 years old, and she's like, she she's still doing great. But she like literally just eats like the cheapest food, and I don't know. How, and she smokes cigarettes, booze, like, and she's 101, and she lives alone still and takes care of herself. She's like, it's amazing. And then, um, uh, but on my Cuban side of the family, I mean, I could go to my aunt Chacho's house any time of day or night. I swear to God, I could walk in at two o'clock in the morning, and she'd be like, you know, like, what do you want, you know, and like. And like, there's always be food going, always be food going. And, and like that like level of care, hospitality is an industry that we're in, but hospitality, to be able to, I mean, listen y'all, we had COVID, it sucked, like, but start like these food traditions and invite your friends over and eat together, please. Mm. And invite your family over and eat together, please. Okay. Incredible. 
So what I'm hearing is, you know, just kind of like food memories, family. And the other half of this, I believe, is how do we pass it on? And we're talking about inviting our communities into the space where we create. Um, Hedy, for you, you know, is this tradition being passed down? Um, are you passing on to your children um, with such a, a wide audience that you have? Are you, do you feel like you're passing, able to pass on what, you know, this in your soul um, and, you know, what has these memories have inspired to a, a huge audience? You mm. know, it sounds like you are. It's a great question because it's something that I thought about recently because as a recipe developer, you know, you're always cooking a lot of different things and... I wondered whether my kids can think, because if I say to them, what do you love of my, you know, what's your favourite dish that mum makes, they really find it hard to give me one dish because I'm always cooking different things and they eat everything I develop, whether they like it or not. Um, so it's a, it's a great question, but think, I think what I'm passing on to them is care. Yeah. You know, they know that when I'm there, I want to cook for them, um, I cook dinner for them every night. It's that it's that care of putting something down. You know, it's it's not always fancy, um, but it, it's just that action of doing it for them. And I find such joy in that. Um, often my husband will say, "Oh, just you know, order something if you don't feel like it." And I said, "But I really want to do it. You know, I want to." Um, do afternoon snack for them, which was actually the, the meal in my house that my dad made for us was afternoon snacks. Our after school snack was like a whole event. Um, and I make it like a whole event for my one child that actually still comes home at three o'clock, the other two are older. Um, so it's, it's, it's those memories. Um, it's, you know, that the trope of cutting their fruit. I always cut their fruit because that's what my mum did for me. Um, but it's yeah, it's all of it's 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 more in the actions than um, there are definitely you know meals that I make all the time that I think that they'll remember. But it's more like the the cooking for them and trying something new and um, yeah. And cult and cult and, that, and they've cultivated gratitude from that too, mm -hmm. you know. And yeah. I just remember like my mom always as a, when I was little before before my parents got divorced, my mom had to go to work like crazy. Mm. But like there was this period of time where she'd always be cooking stuff for us, and like how those memories are so core, and like just feeling really taken care of. Yeah. Uh, the comfort is unbelievable, and yeah. and and like, you know that's. I mean, we still have the opportunity to do that with our friends and, and as, you know, your, as your kids get older. It's just yeah. A, what I think mom? what you were saying, you know, that, you know, inviting your friends over and eating together, um, that's what I'm really trying to do in my food. So, like, in the books, in the recipes, when I write my recipes, I'm really thinking about the end user. Like, how is someone else that lives in another city, maybe not a cosmopolitan city, like somewhere in the yeah. Midwest or someone in another country, like Australia, I'm always thinking like of the world, because I have to when I write recipes, because I have a big audience in Australia. So I'm always thinking like, what is their experience of this recipe? How does cooking this particular recipe make them feel? So that, um, that impacts on what, you know, am I going to use a food processor? How many bits of things am I going to force them to get out to create just this one meal? So these are all the things that I'm thinking about because making recipes that people want to cook 
goes a big way in actually making people cook, yeah. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, really giving them, meeting people where they are, giving them options. It's yeah. why I do do a lot of substitutions in my books because that's how I cook at home. Like I'm a home cook. I don't, I mean, I have a fairly big pantry, but I live in a small apartment. And so it's really like giving people the tools and empowering them to cook dinner for their families no matter what. So not giving them the excuse not to cook. And as a recipe developer, that's in, it's our responsibility to give good recipes that work because people are spending money and time and you know, on the rare occasion I do get to cook other people's recipes, sometimes they don't work and nothing, nothing pisses me off more mm -hmm. than a recipe oh, yeah. that doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, because you're putting, if you're putting that out there, it's got to work because it's just, it's our responsibility. So I think that, you know, but, but giving people good recipes um, is going to encourage people to cook, encourage people to share that food with other people. And food and recipes and books that I write is really about building bridges. It's really about bringing people to the table, bringing people together, whether that's just with your kids or with your friends, with your neighbors, your roommate, um, your people that come from, the visitors from overseas. It's, it's all of that. It's all about creating um, conversation and connection through food in whichever context that is in your life. I, I, I was just going to say, like, with, with uh, hospitality, right, when ancient folks, like, hospitality was required for survival, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you're traveling through the desert, you come upon somebody, like, I need water, I need food, I need shelter yeah. for the night, right? Like, this, is, like, had to be. But I still think that hospitality, I think that we ha we've kind of, like, because we're so comfortable in some ways, we forgot about, like, how that also brought us company mm. and uh, and cures loneliness and yeah. things like that. And I think it's like there's a lot of people that I know could like use um, uh, a good hot meal. Mm. And I think the thing that's so beautiful about your book, like you said, the recipes are so everything you just said, like they're approachable, they're they're you know substitutions, they're concise. And I think that our ours are in our book is are maybe a little more complicated in the front end, but mm. everything that we make, you can buy and just make on the back end of the book. I guess I'm just, um, I just think it's just, I, I don't know, I can't stress enough and I keep on getting back to talking about hospitality, but I am so, so grateful that I was, uh, that when I was like 18 years old, I went and got a job as a dishwasher. Mm -hmm. My first job. Yeah. yeah, where did you start off at, do you remember? Dishwasher, at the, the Hobnob Cafe, Missoula, Montana. Wow. <laughs> 1994. Yeah. Yeah. Started at the no. Keg Steakhouse. No. <laughs> <laughs> My right, chef well, wore cowboy boots. It was nice. I want to save Matt. some time for questions from the audience. So this is for everyone. Um, I think you alluded to it earlier. How did the COVID of 2020 influence or inform your writing? Because I know that right after 2020 happened, there were like a lot of amateur sourdough bread bakers, uh, <laughs> kimchi makers, and other things. And so wondering if, if, if that thing had any, um, if what happened in 2020 had any Im impact in your writing. Well, I think that they published our book because of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think also what, what you both were saying about, you know, substitutions and variations, I've always been a big proponent of that, empowering the home cook, work with what you have. Um, 
but with all the supply chain issues and um, and then obviously like during lockdown, it's nice to have like with our tempeh, it's, you know, it's a pinto bean recipe for the tempeh. It's delicious, but we give all of the other ratios for lentils and millet or, you know, what have whatever you have you can work with. So I'd say that was a big big part of the pandemic was just thinking even more deeply about yeah. that. Mm. Um, I think the pandemic changed the way I cook, actually. Mm -hmm. um, it was just even having, you know, I was already a recipe writer, but suddenly when you're faced with feeding a family of five, three meals a day, it's, it's actually it was quite like, I remember feeling so anxious about it. Um, and then I just got into action. I started thinking, you know, like, that's why a lot of these recipes in Tender Heart were born from the pandemic. Um, there's a lot of kimchi in, there's kimchi used in all sorts of ways. Um, there's even a lasagna with kimchi in it. Because what kimchi represented to me during the pandemic was fast flavor. How can I inject, you know, a hell of a lot of, uh, you know, spiciness, um, saltiness, funkiness, um, bit of piquancy. How can I add all of that in a quick way? And I can add that to cabbage. Um, I can add it to potatoes. I can add it to kale. Like all these applications, I'm suddenly getting fast flavor from kimchi. So I remember that was one of the, the few things that I could buy a lot of during the pandemic because it was kind of like very hard to get um, ingredients in New York and there was always kimchi and I would always have three jars. I didn't make it, I would buy it. Um, but that was, that really changed the way I used kimchi actually. And as a result, how I would use now other fermented products like, um, you know, just sauerkraut, like just actually cooking them. That was a, a really kind of big um, revelation for me. But also like thinking um, about your pantry in a different way and really using umami, which is something else I thought I talk about in the book, is really using things like miso, again, fermented product, um, and really using that to inject flavor into whatever vegetable dish you're making. So yeah, pandemic was a huge turning point for me. Well, incredible. Thank you all for joining us today. I am inspired to cook and eat vegetables and to Woo. be a great host. Um, thank you, Hetty. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Aaron. I've had a wonderful thank time. You, you. And you all have a great festival, and I'll see you all soon. That was an event that we called Eat Your Vegetables, featuring Aaron Adams, chef and owner of Portland's Fermenter Restaurant, his co-author of the Fermenter Cookbook, Liz Crane, Tenderheart Cookbook author, Hetty Lou McKinnon, and author of Everyone's Table and chef and owner of Con in Portland, Gregory Gorday. Their conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the Portland Five Winningstead Theater at the Portland Book Festival on Saturday, November 4th, 2023. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have episodes on the history of Chinatowns and a fun conversation between a cookbook author and a novelist. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Matthew Workman for Radio and Podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and Crystal Ligori and support from Liz Olofsson. Our intern is Ada Hallstrom. 
Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy, Hope Levy, and Laura Rankins, and to the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thank you to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.